Okay, this is the Poet Delayed Podcast. Uh, my name is Scott. I'm the host, and I have with me today Ben Christiansen. And um, let's talk a little bit about you. Um, so I first got to know you, well, I don't even remember what year it was. It was probably 15 or 16. Right around there. Yeah, one of my, my clients in my legal practice, you were his treater. And... You know, we just got to know each other that way, and we've been friends ever since, and we've uh, had some great discussions and conversations, and we we uh, went to lunch last oh, a couple weeks ago, and as we were talking, you were, you were sharing some things with me that I really, that really resonated with me, and so I'm happy, I'm excited to talk about those things today, but first of all, let's, so, so you are a neuropsych- neuropsychologist, right? I am. And so tell me a little bit about your background. Well, my background's pretty large, isn't it? Um, I've been in mental health for about 25 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I've worked pretty much any type of mental health aspect. You can think of child welfare, prisons, um, youth corrections, private practice, mental health hospitals. Um, I've been a therapist. Right now, as you said, I'm a neuropsychologist, so I assess people. Um, I've started practices. I've started companies. Um, pretty much if it's a way to help people, become a better version of themselves i'm interested in doing it that's a good pursuit for you and for people it's a busy pursuit yeah i can imagine so and i know you were with uh, tanner clinic for a long time and you recently left tanner clinic and you've started up some other companies right now is that right i have um so obviously we're about to start up bring up my private practice again um a little bit different because we're getting more into that proactive health mixture of, of neuropsychology where we're trying to help people have a health span instead of just a lifespan. Um, so what can we do to make you not fall apart? Mm. You know, where people usually come in and they go, oh, I think I have a memory issue. Well, we're grateful when we find that they don't have one, but then how do we keep them from potentially getting one? So so when you, when you say a health span, you know, I mean, I have my, both my grandmas had, um, one form or another of dementia and they lived, oh, I don't even know, eighties, but the last few years were not quality living. Is that what you're talking about? And, and that's exactly right. So medicine, I think oftentimes gets very focused on lifespan. Mm-hmm. How long can we make you live? If you get a disease, how long can we prolong it and maybe right. take some of the symptoms away? And I go, yes, all of us want to live as long as we can, but we also, like you said, we want it to be quality. So that's that health span. You know, some people call it longevity. I don't really like that term. I think more of health span. If I'm going to live long, I want to have a quality life. No one wants your doctor to turn to you and say, I'm going to help you live 15 years more. It's going to be completely miserable the whole time. So No, that doctor would... Yeah. Not last long. But I think sometimes that's sadly what medicine does, right? We know insurances and medicine sadly are very more reactive than proactive. So one of these, um, it's concussion baseline. So yeah, it's concussion baseline. So, um, one of our other companies is we're very pro, um, finding out where you're supposed to be. So, you know, I have quite a few people, quite a few contracts with the, with professional sports and stuff where I see people that come in with head injuries. And one of the hardest parts is you have to go, okay, so where did you start? And Mm -hmm. you do a lot of assumptions, right? And, and so when you say start, are you talking like, like 
you're coming in with a head injury, but who were you before? You're right. Before you got this head injury, what was your what was yeah. your baseline? Well, who were you? Okay. Who were you? Okay. Because I think it helps because we kind of go, well, do you have a concussion? How do I know if you got better? Mm-hmm. Um, there used to be this joke in in concussion treatment that every high school football player had a concussion until Thursday night. No. And then they had to do the walkthrough or they didn't play Friday. Then they had the best sleep they ever had in their whole life. And it's like, yeah, there's an incentive to do that. But then you sit back and you go, but what's really going on? If we're really going to have that health span, that quality of life, what's really going on? How do we know that neurologically you you really should be returning to play or whatever it might be? And so our goal is to get baselines of anyone that plays any sport and then just go, if you get a head injury, then we can screen you again and go, is that actually off Mm. of your baseline? Right now the research goes, here's what we think the average is. But if you think of any profession in the world, so if you took every lawyer, for example, and lined them up, are they all identical? Are they all the same? Can you create an average that is really going to meet that individual? It's It's a safe place to start, but it may not be accurate. A person with a PhD looks very, very different than someone that barely made it through high school. Yeah. And I want to make sure that if I'm measuring you and saying there's an issue, we need to proactively do something that I know what we're measuring you against to get you. My dad once had his knee replaced and they're in there and they just kept stretching it and stretching it and stretching. He's like, it hurts, it hurts. And they're like, well, we're just trying to get the best range of motion. And then they walked in and realized that his range of motion from all that hurting was actually better than he his original knee would do because they never bothered long enough to stop and see what his true ability was. Mm. So they're injuring him thinking they were doing it right, moving it further than it was meant to go. And I'm like, that just doesn't sound like good practice. I agree. I'm not even a doctor and I agree. Look at so, that. so, so, so I, so I, I really like that. So are, you're offering this, I mean, like if, if somebody who's listening has, has kids or, or want to get, is it up and running? It's up and running. So if somebody wanted, uh, you know, kids or parents who have kids playing uh, high school sports or recreational sports, and they kind of want, they wanted to get this, how, how would they go about that? It's really easy. You can just, so you can find us on Facebook, obviously. We have, it's called Concussion Baseline. You can also find us online at www.concussion-baseline.com. And I'll put the link in, in you know, in this episode here so and how much would that cost if somebody wanted to go and get a baseline it's about 29 dollars, and we actually you do it from home we actually send you the link and you can do it on your computer at home and it's good for a year so anywhere anytime if you think you get a head injury let's say johnny plays soccer but you're up camping and he smacks into a tree playing capture the flag doesn't matter we could still go in and assess him afterwards and go is it off Mm. and that's the nice part is it's not sport specific it's anytime it just it's kind of like having that guarantee for an entire year we change it every year because we know you grow and your brain gets better and you you change how you think and those wirings and so you know i've known of people says oh i was i was evaluated 10 years ago and i was like i really hope your brain developed in the last (laughs) 10 years so wow if it hasn't maybe they had a big concussion 10 years ago or there's some genetics. <laughs> Who knows, right? <laughs> well, that's exciting. So that's cool. Um, it almost sounds like something uh, – I probably shouldn't uh, suggest any more requirements for high school sports. but We'd like it. We'd like I it think for we, anything. Yeah, I think I think it would, it would be very helpful. So, Well, that's great. Um, and so 
some other companies that you have. You, you, you mentioned that you work with executives. and Yep, and so um, we have another company where we're in the process of finalizing so we can launch where we're offering um, psychological assessments remotely, mm-hmm. right? So one of the hard things is that we know that mental health is getting worse in, in society and services aren't easy and driving long distances for evaluations that may take three hours, but it took you two hours to get to your appointment just it isn't feasible. And so we're in the process of launching a company where we can actually take those services to these these rural areas where people can receive those that help. Um, like you had mentioned, um, I do some consulting with executive organizations, mm-hmm. uh, more from the, the that concept of a lot of companies think it's the body of the fish that smells when it's really the head. And I have companies that will contact us and say, can you come in? We have a problem with this executive organization. Are they the right ones? Or, hey, we want to purchase this company, but we're not really sure if this CEO or this this executive team is the right one to keep in place. And, and my job is to go in and I assess them and go, what's your goals? And do they actually have the structure or personality to meet those? Mm. And then okay. the last one we're working on right now is that there's, you know, I'm pro therapy. I'm pro meds. I, th- I think they help people with mental health issues. My concern is I don't think that's the only answer in life. We know that the research shows that exercise and sleep yeah. and nutrition play a role. But we also know that the universal way to really tap into someone's rhythm, their body rhythm, is through music. So I've been working with a company um, where we're assessing the ability of using music to improve sleep cycles and concentration, trying to take the medication out of it. Um, my dissertation was on chronic insomnia, and I always laughed because Contrary to what everyone thinks, Ambien and that doesn't really help you sleep better. It just knocks you out easier. Mm. But I've never met someone says, because I took my Ambien, I woke up so much more refreshed than I ever have in my <laughs> life. Right. And so my goal is if you're going to do it, make it actually increase that health span. Yeah. That's one thing, I guess, to be unconscious for eight hours. And it's another thing to sleep for eight hours. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Makes sense. All right. Well, I'm excited to talk to you today about about this. Now, I, I gave you the uh, the option to pick a poem out of my book, and you chose a haiku. Um, the haiku is meaningful life. So I'm going to read that here. It's and then let's talk about it. So again, meaningful life. It reads, having fame and wealth brings no true lasting meaning. Such is found within. And so my question to you is why this haiku? Why, why this poem? What, what, what was it that uh, caught your eye? I think probably it has more to do with a personal aspect, okay. right? Um, one of the luxuries and, and opportunities I get is I, I, I get to speak a lot. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I speak to youth, I speak to adults, I speak all over the place. And, and, and I, I share with them one of the interesting things is that I'm not supposed to be alive. So when my mom was pregnant with me, my parents were in the military, they lived in Germany. My, my mom got um, German measles, so smallpox. Back, back in the early 70s, the medical advice was to have an abortion. 
and my mom refused to have one. And so they tried to order her, even though she wasn't in the military, <laughs> you have to, you have to have an abortion. And my mom's like, well, I'm not. And so then they ordered my dad to order my mom. <laughs> and my dad's like, you've obviously not met my wife. And so they chose not to. And they had to sign all these legal documents if something happened. But back then, if the mom survived the pregnancy and if the fetus survived the pregnancy, the fetus usually would either be cognitively or physically handicapped. Now, my sisters argue maybe the cognitive handicap piece that's with easy me, joke. right? Yeah, so that's yeah. an easy joke. Five sisters, you know, I, I probably, yeah, I yeah. probably earned that. But, but the reality is, is I was blessed that I didn't have any major issues. And so I often sit back and I go, because of that, I get to be fearless, right? Because technically, if my parents had followed medical advice, I shouldn't be alive. Mm-hmm. So anything that I do, anything that I take on, I get to go, this is an added bonus mm. because I wasn't technically by science supposed to be here. And so as I think through that, as I work with patients, as I talk to youth and stuff, I, I always try to share with them those personal experiences you have from life. And I remember sitting in grad school with my wife. We were young. We were dumb. We were extremely poor. I think um, that year outside of the student loans we were using, I think we made like $5,000. Like we were poor and we had two kids, right? And, and I was like, I, and we're laying in bed. It was one of the few nights that I didn't have to work a grave. And mm-hmm. I turned to her and I go, I figured it out. And she's like, you figured what out? I said, I know how we're going to make $100,000 if we do this, this. And I gave her my whole spiel. And we're like, holy cow, what would you do with $100,000? We're going to be so rich, right? And back then in our minds, I, that was like more money than a human being would ever need. And because we'd have that money, we'd be successful and we'd be happy. And yeah, all those things that I think everyone falls into. And then we realized that wasn't really actually going to bring happiness. We were happy there in grad school, dirt poor with our kids, living life, figuring it out. And it got me thinking. So I started working when I'd speak to people, and I especially do it with youth where I'll bring them up and I give them this little satchel that's got pure silver coins in it, about a hundred thousand dollars. And I'll hand it to them. I'll be like, so look in it. And they'll look, say, Oh, these are real coins. I'm like, yes, they're real coins. This is how much is in it. What would you sell of your soul or whatever for this money? And they'd be, Oh, I'll do anything. I get the best car, I get the best house. And I'm like, but could you really? Will a hundred thousand dollars buy you your dream house? Will it do this? It might buy you your dream car. Can you actually upkeep your dream car after you buy it with all this <laughs> money? Right. And, and we start talking. What I share with them is I go, we get so caught up on this belief that fame, who we know, who we engage, what we make, what we wear, what we have is somehow going to equate to this great outcome. But it never seems to add up that way. I've never had a patient walk in my office and go, I am so miserable because I don't have the nicest car, (laughs) right? I am so miserable that my house isn't bigger than Joe's down the street. They all come in saying, I have this, I have that. Maybe I don't have that, but I'm still not happy. And I think what it comes down to is this authenticity of no, of a having a power word that defines you. Like I said, mine is fearless. Mm-hmm. I'm fearless. I'm, 
Now, I have to learn to regulate that because sometimes my fear just turns into, I'm going to tell you what I think if you like it or not. Your life is kind of like getting a an an offsides penalty in football. It's just a free play for the – That's right. For the, they might as well go for the end Ex- zone. Uh, yeah, I might as well go for the end zone. Now, sometimes I have to remember I have to follow the rules of ah, the yes, game, yes, 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 yes. right? And so I've, you have to learn in, in that power word. But to me, the authenticity comes into the true meaning of who you are, mm-hmm. of almost having an equation, if you would, to understand – these are the core principles that make me me or that matter to me, and that equates to it. Now, are you talking about, like you mentioned equation, is this something that you are suggesting that we, you know, each individual should sit down and figure this out? Or are these equations that we can maybe just subconsciously uh, just, we just, you know, as we go through our life, we just create our own equation, whether it's a positive equation or, or not a good equation. Are you saying that some, when you say equation, I guess, so the question is when you say equation, is it something that you are consciously sitting down and writing out? That's a great question. I think it's a little bit of both. I think our equation develops from that subconscious experience, whatever it may be. Like all of us were in school, when I grow up, there'll never be homework again, right? <laughs> yeah. And then we become parents and we look at our kids and go, where's your homework, right? Yeah. And, so, and so, yeah, we have those experiences. We have those thoughts. Um, we have those subconscious. But I think for you to find your authenticity and your happiness, it takes some effort to sit down and go, now I actually have to, like your, like your poems that you write, I have to put pen to paper. Mm-hmm. I have to actually sit down and I have to go, what would I draw this equation out to be? And whatever those variables are. Now, variables shift, but the equation should still stay the same. If I want to be a good person, what does that act, What does that equation mean to me? Or I'm not ever going to achieve that piece that I, I want to be a great person. I want everyone to like me. So I talk trash about people I don't like. Well, <laughs> well, no, that's not that's not going to add to the equation you're wanting. Right. So figure out, you know, maybe you can have multiple equations in your life as well. Like, like to your to your point, I want to be a kind person, and then, you know, look at your life. What what do I need to do to achieve that? And to your point, um, being rude to other people will not equal being a kind person. So, um, is that like when I said earlier, you know, we could, you know, have different types of equations in our life or different relationships. Is that something that you contemplate in, in, in this equation? I think you concept? have to, right? I think it's a, I think if you think of life as a full equation, like maybe this master equation, mm-hmm. but then you have your subcategories in there, right? So if I want meaning in life, so I had a friend who just passed away and we were at his funeral, world renowned pianist and Everyone talked about how awesome he was with human beings. Yes, it was cool. He played the piano. They played some of the music that he recorded. He's done. You name it, he's done it. But that isn't what everyone spent the hour of his funeral talking about. They talked about the thing that meant the most to him, and that was his relationships with other people, mm-hmm. how he was perceived with his family, with his friends, with his colleagues. He wanted to be known. Now, everyone joked around because they're like, well, he's Italian and Italians really like people. Mm -hmm. But then they said, but he went far and beyond that because to him, that human relationship was the most important. It wasn't just a, have you heard me tell you I love you? It was, have you seen me 
love you. And I think, so you go, you've got that master equation, but then I think you can look at those sub equations because life varies, right? I'm a young dad. I'd love to think to me being healthy is important, but I'm a young dad. And right now me having my kids, that equation may be front and center more than me hitting the gym every five seconds. Yeah. Right. So you have that master equation. You have those sub equations. I think sometimes in life you have those moments you can look at your master equation. Mm -hmm. And then those other times you sit back and go, I'm just looking at that singular equation. Interesting. Yeah. And I like that because it's almost like the self analysis kind of, that's my personal physical that I do. I want to be this person. I remember once I, uh, I had a CEO turn to me. Um, I was working for the company. I thought I was doing everything the company wanted me to do. Right. So you walk in and they're like, we want you to be successful. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we're a for-profit organization. Well, if you remember when I was in grad school, my goal was to make, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars. So I'm, I'm here, I'm a partner at this organization. I'm making more than 10 times that. I was like, I'm doing everything that's to be expected of me. I thought I was doing it right. And the CEO pulled me and says, can I give you some, a word of advice? I was like, love to. What's going on? He says, you need to work on not being so aggressive. And I was like blown away. I was like, mm. aggressive? I mean, I've been accused of a lot of things. <laughs> I mean, again, I have five sisters. I've been accused yeah, of a lot sisters. of things. But I was like, I've never been accused of being an aggressive individual. I'm probably a little obstinate, pig-headed, stubborn, you know, all those things that we always are working on. But that one really bothered me. And it, what was interesting is I found myself for the for like almost three, three and a half years afterwards asking everyone I knew, do you think I'm aggressive? I'm calling friends from school. I'm calling professors, other mentors. It really bothered me that someone would have the audacity to call me something I didn't believe. And it really took me a while to stop back and look at my own equation of how I wanted to be perceived and go, A, is what he's saying correct? B, is there a perception I'm doing that might be leading to that? And I think that gave me a chance to say, well, how do I really want to be seen? What does my equation of human interaction going to be? And then also, what was it about that that bothered me so much? Because I don't think he was coming from it from a mean perspective or a judgmental. He really saw it as he was trying to give me some advice. And he and I were able to talk about it years later and what the conclusion was, is that he had shared it, but had never given any guidance on what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So he's just kind of like, here's your problem. Good luck. And kind of, <laughs> he went off, did his thing. And I was like, well, 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 if there's this shortcoming and I'm doing everything that equates to fame and everything that equates to, you know, being financially stable and doing everything that I thought you guys were. And here you are telling me that I'm coming up short. And that was hard because I've always considered myself pretty authentic. And I was like, is it that I'm blind, which we can be blind, or is there something else about that? Well, after I realized that it was him not sharing stuff with me, then I had to go back to my equation and go, okay, so in my interactions with people, is it just that I'm mad that people won't tell me or am I also prone to do the same? Am I honest with people like about. I want to be about stuff? So if I share with you, hey, you know, this really bothered me. Good luck. Don't let it bother you that I just told you versus coming back later and going and let's talk through yeah. it. And I think I, I had to even learn that in parenting. How often do we turn to our kids and say, knock it off? 
Right. And, and what? I told you to knock it off. Yeah. And we just assume I've raised you, child. You know the expectation and what I mean by that. Um, so what was your conclusion as you thought of it? First of all, I mean, it, when somebody comes to us with a critique like that, it takes a lot of self-awareness and a lot of um, – it's hard to look inward sometimes and to figure that out. So as you did that, or did you have any um, aha moments? Did you have any like realizations like, okay, I can see what he means and um, I can see adjustments? Or what was your conclusion? Great question. I'm, I'm not really sure that I was a, oh yeah, you're right. I'm an aggressive individual. You don't seem to be that type of person. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not. I, and of course I have to take into account I'm six, three, so I'm a big guy. So I come across pretty intimidating if I'm not careful, but what it did allow me to do is to go, he, he called it aggressive. Could I call it something different? Mm. Right. Um, because we wish that everyone had the right verbiage for exactly what they meant. And sometimes we get so stuck on thinking that we're doing it right that we walk in and go, you used a word that doesn't describe me. You are so wrong. That's a great point. Um, language is so limiting, you know, yeah. and our, it's so limiting. And I think understanding that point and being willing to talk about it with an individual could avoid so many problems. Mm -hmm. You know, when someone says, calls you something rather than getting inflamed and like, that's not me, maybe that's not what they meant. You know, what did you, did you come to a conclusion about it then? Well, yeah. And so what I found is that part of my struggle was even in my power of finding myself as being quote unquote fearless, mm -hmm. sometimes in that fearlessness, I would just Geronimo into a situation. I've thought through it. This is what I think. And I'm dropping it on, on everybody. And it wasn't meant offensive. And anyone that knew me knew that I wasn't trying to be offensive. But it allowed me to go, you know what? That doesn't mean it's not perceived different from other people. So while I may not agree with his word, it did open my, my eyesight to, if my true equation is I want to people to really think that that I care and that I'm smart and that I'm capable, I can also approach it from a, I don't have to Geronimo into the middle of it. Mm. I can approach it from a much different perspective, still achieve my goal, but be prepared, for example, to just make sure that maybe the person I shared it with took it the way I meant mm -hmm. instead of letting him fester in it of, oh, well, that, that offended me or whatever that might be. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Um, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, you talked about wealth and, 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 um, fame, which is, you know, included in this, in this haiku. And, you know, when I wrote this haiku, I, I put, I put like the words I used, I would use for a reason. Um, you know, in fame and wealth, those to me represent external things. Um, and so it doesn't have to necessarily be fame or wealth. It could be anything that an individual, anything external to an individual or to me rather, to be more specific, anything external to me that I, that I may gather my worth from that's not internal to me. And then, and then, 
it brings no true lasting meaning. And I, I use the word meaning there rather than happiness or uh, yeah, no lasting happiness. And I use that specifically because, you know, as I've, these last year or so, as I've really been making a lot of, you know, doing a lot of work on myself, I've come to this understanding that I don't want to make happiness my goal in life. I don't want to chase happiness per se. Um, and, and my understanding of that now is that, you know, there, if that's what I'm chasing happiness, then there by definition are times in my life where I cannot achieve that goal. You know, uh, you know we've talked about this. Um, if you have a loved one die, you know, if my goal is to be happy you can't be happy and grieve the death of a loved one. I don't think at the same time, they're mutually exclusive. But when you have, when my goal is to have a meaningful life, meaningfulness can, can appear in your life regardless of the crap that you're going through. You know, you can have a loved one who dies and you can be grieving that, but that doesn't undermine your goal or your search for meaningful to have a meaningful life. And so that's why I use the word meaningful there. Now I think that happiness can be a product of that as you're searching, but you can't always be happy. And if that's your goal, I think there's something, or if that's your goal, I don't think you're going to fall short of it a lot in life, a lot in life, because there's life is tragic, you know? And, and, and if the goal is to be happy, then that's, that's not going to, uh, you're not going to reach that goal. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Because we've talked about this a little bit, and I'm I'm, I'm always interested in hear your thoughts, and, and and so I'm just interested in what you're thinking about that. You know, and, and I think that you've got, I, I think you're correct. Um, I know that one of the things I often see clinically when people come in, especially teenagers, for some reason, I'm gonna walk in and they'll go, I'll say, tell me about your emotions. Oh, you want to know? Mm-hmm. Right? They, they like have no definition of them. I had a young man that was court ordered to me once. He had punched some kid at school, like knocked him out. Mm-hmm. And I was like, dude, what happened? He's like, oh, well, he jumped out and he scared me. I got pissed and I hit him. And I was like, oh, okay, so you're scared. No, I don't get scared. And I was like, what? <laughs> you like literally just told me that. And he's like, no, I told you I got pissed. And I was like, well, well tell me a story again. Well, this kid jumped out, scared me. I got pissed and I hit him. So you were scared and it led to you getting pissed. No, I get scared. And I realized, dude, you don't understand your emotions, right? And I think that's why it's very difficult to chase emotions mm. because there's over 150 different emotions and they fluctuate based off of any given second and perception and feeling and how I slept and am I hungry and the person I'm with and all that can change. And, and I think that one of those dilemmas, like, like you said, is if your goal is to chase that, you're going to never have stability. Whereas if you go, I have a meaning and I take the crap that goes with it, right? None of us had a child and turned and said, I'm having a child so I can always be happy. <laughs> right? That just doesn't happen. Well, because they've never had a child. Right. Really. Exactly. Anyways, right. That. It's like you needed to babysit more yeah. <laughs> before you chose to do that. But that doesn't mean I'm not happy with my child, right. but I'm frustrated with my child. I'm scared for my child. 
I'm irritated by my child. There's a lot of other emotions that come with it. So if I go, I'm having a child for an emotion, you, you need to, re- I'm getting married so that I can be happy. Really? You ever met anyone that's ever had a 100% happy marriage? I mean, we already know that growth doesn't come from everything being perfect. Yeah. Growth and learning comes from the struggles. And and so I agree with you. I, I, I think that your wording is perfect because that it's not just, if you look at it, not just from the positive, but also the negative. Everything that we have a tendency to do as a society is we've been taught that it's an external thing, right? Mm-hmm. Fame, fortune, wealth. Um, my life sucks because of you, whatever it might be. We're really good at putting it out on everything else, but then complaining that we don't feel stable or anchored in anything. And it's like, well, you don't get it both ways. You don't get to blame or blame anything out there or make everything out there being your meaning and then complain that your anchor's not tied to anything. Um, and I think that happens quite often, right? Um, I, I think of a recent discussion I had um, with one of our political leaders in the area who had shared that they're seeing in, in adolescent mental health what's called a hockey stick graph where they've kind of had the stability of struggles and all of a sudden it has spiked. Mm-hmm. And they're like, and we've determined that it's because of social media. And I'm like, yes and no. And he's looking at me. He's like, what do you mean? I says, no, I, I don't think social media is helping. Right. But I think it's really hard for us to put all the blame on social media. We're, we're acting like there are no struggles in life before iPhones were, were created. Mm-hmm. Right now as a dad, maybe I'm more prone to say, yeah, maybe social media <laughs> is the issue. Right. But the reality is that's not it. And, and I think that even professionally, that's one of those struggles that I often work with patients on to get them to understand the symptoms, the experiences, whatever's going on with their life isn't fun. There's no question. But the key is to figure out the why part, right? Why is social media causing these issues in our adolescence? What are they missing in that equation, in that authenticity? What is it replacing? Like research has shown us over and over. Parents, even if they're not great at parenting, are much more important in how their kids turn out than the nicest phone that they have in their pocket. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a difference between maybe an abusive parent, but for most parents, most parents are good. They're really trying the best they can. So if we were to sit back and look at people's struggles, whether it's to find meaning or whatever that might be, and stop long enough to go the why. So if we went back to my experience with the you're aggressive, Mm-hmm. Well, I can get mad at him. That's a natural emotion. I'm not wrong for feeling that. Me being mad at him isn't really going to help me. It's not going to elevate me, teach me anything. But sitting back and going, but why? Why would he feel that way? Why would he say that? Why am I struggling with it? And I think that sometimes that that's that self-analysis that has to happen, that authenticity. We have to be okay with the truth. Like I'll evaluate kids and their parents will come in like Johnny has ADHD and I'll test Johnny and go, Johnny doesn't have ADHD. Well, you're saying it's my fault, <laughs> right? And that's where the parents go. And I, was, right. and, I, and I have to look at them and say, well, so here's the dilemma. 
apples don't fall from banana trees. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, your parenting probably didn't help the situation. Am I going to say your parenting caused the situation? Ooh, that's a pretty broad stroke to be brushing. So let's talk about all the little whys in the equation of you want Johnny to become this or Johnny wants to become that. Let's look at the equation and the variables now, that are in there. what you're describing is not a quick fix. What you're describing takes a lot of attention. It takes a lot of awareness. It takes time. It takes um, introspection. Humility. Humility. So what you're describing, to properly flesh these problems, issues out, it's not a quick fix. It's not a pill. It's not... Um, it's not a, you know, a couple of sessions of therapy. So that's what you're, you know, no pun intended. It's a hard pill to swallow, so, so to speak, because what you're suggesting is that it's going to take effort. It's not going to. And if you want to, like, as a parent, if you want to help your children, you don't help your children by just fixing your children. I've found, for me at least, that I can best help my children by being the best person I can be, not necessarily by being the best, you know, not starting out by being the best, best dad I can be, but to be the best me I can be. And then I can be there for my children. I've, you know, I've, you know, as I've been going through this, um, this, uh, you know, well, well, I don't even know what I call it anymore. Just as I've journey journey, oh, it sounds like I'm on uh, American idol. Yeah, it's been a great journey. Your journey <laughs> stops here. But as I've been going through this journey, as I've been, you know, going through this recovery, this this uh, reclaiming myself, my authentic self. That's I think I like that the best. I'm reclaiming myself because I've never been gone. It's just I'm I'm dusting myself off. I'm digging deep. I've I've done what you mentioned. Like now, when I have when I get flooded by an emotion or I start to feel, you know, using the uh, window of tolerance language, if I become hyper aroused or hypo aroused, I used to just go with it. Like, that's where I'm at right now. I'm just going to wait for it to burn off. But now I'm trying to be more proactive. Like, OK, I'm, I am feeling agitated and I am feeling irritated and anxious right now. And I try to pause and think, OK, why? You know, what is going on? Is there some threat right now to me that I need to observe? Is there a th in most often? No, there's no threat. It's just, you know, I'm anxious for the future. Uh, any of these issues that are in my mind, it's phantoms sometimes. But it's not easy because even though I might have that awareness, it's still easier just to ride the emotion through rather than thinking, why, what can I do about it? And so when I think about what you're talking about, um, especially, especially in the realm of my children, because I think it's like, I've, I grew up just, you know, trying to avoid chaos my whole life. And one way that I did that was just put it all on me and I'll just, I mean, whatever, it doesn't matter at least I don't have to worry. And, and it sounds virtuous, but it wasn't because what it was, was I didn't want to have to worry about other people. So I would take it on me. And that was a way for me not to at least have to worry about them. I'll just go down with the ship. You guys go. It's fine. And that's, it wasn't because 
it wasn't some altruistic move. It was a survival mode for me. So I didn't have to stress and have that worry. And so with my kids, yeah, I look at them and I don't want them to struggle. I don't want them to have problems with friends. I don't want to feel them to feel left out. I don't want them to, their feelings to be hurt. But the fact of the matter is you can't prevent that ever. And so what I've been learning is, well, it's, I've been understanding that it, there's no quick, easy fix. These kids, they go through their lives. They're, for me, my what I'm trying to do is just be available for them. You, What's going on? Let's talk. And just l- listen to them and talk to them. Um, but it's hard. It takes effort. There's no easy pill that'll fix it. And, and I think that that's probably an obstacle to the, I mean, you mentioned earlier that the mental health is getting worse. And I think an obstacle is that it's hard work to overcome that. I think it's hard work. I think the other struggle that you often see is that contrary to what we all believe, our memory isn't that good. We don't remember being teenagers. We remember the fun things. Maybe Mm. we remember some really traumatic things, but we don't remember really what it's like to be a teenager. And somewhere we go, now that I have reached this adulthood, I have all the answers. And then it takes experiences like your journey to go, hmm, maybe I don't have all the answers. And you know what? Maybe that's okay while I'm finding out me and it allows me to step back and maybe give some grace to my children that they also are going to be okay. That the goal is to get to that meaning and sometimes it's not going to be happy. It's like, for example, exercise. No one starts their first day of exercise and goes, that was the most meaningful thing (laughs) I've ever done. I loved every moment of it. Most people are like, why did I do that? And the next day or the day after, they're definitely wondering why they did it. And it's not till they start seeing some results that they get um, enthusiastic about it. Yep. And it's just like that self-analysis, if you would, of your equation. When you start, no, it's not fun because there's a lot of stuff that's got to be dug out of that basement. But all of a sudden, it becomes like exercise. I almost wake up where I need to do it. I revel in the ability to sit back and go, okay, Quick self-check. Am I headed in the direction where I really wanted to go? Am I authentic to myself? One of the biggest words that I challenge patients with all the time is the word but. Mm-hmm. We're all really – think about being a kid, right? One or two T's. The one T. Okay. okay. Though so I, I, I'll use both <laughs> T's, right? So I'll be like, do you like smell one? No, then stop using one, right? But but I'll sit back and go, remember being the teenager when your parents go – You're not allowed to go do that, but you really, really wanted to do it. So you found a way around the rules to go do it, hoping you didn't get caught. And then we become these adults and we're like, well, I want to, I want to find meaning, but you know, I'm kind of busy. I want to go to the gym, but I don't really have time. And it's like, then why don't you just at least be authentic and say, you don't like going to the gym. Mm -hmm. Like my wife is a long distance runner. And everyone's like, you should run with your wife. And I've made it very clear to everyone. I only run if I'm being chased (laughs) or if I'm leaving something. There's nothing worth me leaving. Love my wife to death. I'm 6'3 and I worked in a prison. I'm not afraid. I'm not getting chased. I'll turn instead. And so I, I laugh because 
that's one of those dilemmas is can you be authentic with yourself? Here's what's important. Like, let's bring up the parenting thing. Mm-hmm. The reason I got into mental health um, was working at a hospital as an admitting clerk. And we had this young lady come in who had attempted suicide. Um, they asked me to sit with her um, while they were waiting for um, the, the for the county to show up to, to do this crisis intervention. And so not knowing what I was doing. I mean, I think I was like 20 years old at the 21. No, I guess I was about 22 um, at the time. I'm sitting there going, uh, sup? So you start talking to the girl because I don't know, I don't know what their rules are. Um, I, I was in like my second year of undergrad, you know, and so the girl starts talking to me. When we're done, the mom turns to me and she goes, what just happened? And I was thinking, oh, I'm in trouble. You're calling my boss. Mm. All this stuff's going to happen. And I said, uh, well, what do you mean? She says, my daughter's talked more to you in the last three hours than she's talked to anyone in over a year. And I'm going, okay, can I ask why? I was like, I guess I'm going to get in trouble one way or the other. Might as well ask what I want to, right? (laughs) You know why. Yeah. And so the mom turned and says, well, my husband and I got into this horrible divorce and, and he's not a great man and they've had a really bad relationship. And I just, it got so, I got so tired of arguing with her and she was so miserable. I just started letting her do whatever she wanted, chasing her happiness, if you Mm -hmm. would. And this led to her sitting in an emergency room where she had attempted suicide. And I went home and I thought about that overnight and it dawned on me that what had happened is this mom and dad relationship, not unbearing, right? had set these universal truths of how they believed they should raise their children. It was their equation of here's how we're going to raise our child. And because of this chaos, everything that they believed to be true, they just kind of erased and said, you're free to chase happiness instead of meaning. And then you got to see this happen. And I think that happens as parents, right? We want our kids to be happy. We want them to be successful. We want them to like us. But are we doing that so that they're happy or are we doing that to drive their meaning? Or are we doing that because if they're happy, we don't have, then they're, they're preoccupied and they don't take up our time. Or true. Like, so I um, spoke at this conference once and, and I was sharing with them that research shows that 86% of the time when we respond to our child, it's because they've done something wrong. And I had, wow. and I had this dad in the audience go, well, at least 14% of the time we're getting it right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and everyone kind of chuckled. I went, but you know, the sad thing is that's not true of that 14%, 11% of it, we're just ignoring them because they're not doing anything that bothers us. Hmm. So 3% of the time we're actually reinforcing the positive stuff of our children. But if you think about that in any aspect of life, when's the last time that you focused on just the positive things in your own life, or let's say in a marriage or, or at a work or whatever else, how often are we, here's the things I don't like that need to be fixed. And as long as everything's working right, I got nothing to say, but only once in a while do I bring up that positive stuff. And then we sit back and go, and my goal is to have amazing relationships. Really? Cause that's not what your equation looks like. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we often think of like maybe, you know, when I think about, okay, we're going to build something like, say you want to build, you've got companies that you're, you're building. 
in building anything, even like a physical structure, you need to make sure that nothing goes wrong. You need to, like if they're building this bridge on I-15 in Centerville, you know, you've got to make sure, you got to make sure that the, um, the geometry is correct on the bridge so that it meets the other side, that the tension and the steel and all that stuff is, you got to, so I, I can see in a situation like that, you need to pay, you need to be hyper aware of the problems because they can lead to problems. But it seems to me that maybe that's not the case in um, relationships that you're just hyper aware of the problems. You need to have a healthy dose of the positives as well. I mean, so I, I guess uh, like for my, with my kids, I'm just thinking here. Um... Well, take your analogy really quick, if yeah, you go would. Ahead. Okay. So you're talking about this bridge we're making. So all of us get to hear on the news right now this, oh, you know, our infrastructure in the United States sucks. Our bridges are old and na, 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 na. Well, isn't that the dilemma? It's just like raising a kid. We go, I taught you all the right principles when you were two. <laughs> I built this bridge and it is done. How many people like driving on the roads after winters in Utah? Yeah. It looks like it, well, like there is a war zone. Yeah. Potholes everywhere, rips, everything. And it's like, what happened? Well, we didn't worry about it. It wasn't an issue until it was an issue. And it's like, yeah, but you don't understand. Now it's an issue. I have a good friend, brand new car, exploded her tire in a pothole over the weekend, like trashed her car. Brand new, off the lot. Mm. And she's just, and you know, she's posting about how miserable it is. And I was like, sad that it happened to you. Because none of us think that's going to occur, right? Yeah, I know we're intelligent enough to go, I know my child's going to struggle. They're going to have to figure out stuff. All of us do it. But my kid's going to be okay. Until They're my not. kid's not okay. I'm going to be okay until I'm, right? Your doctor, you need to eat healthier before you have a heart attack. Well, research shows that. 87% roughly of people who survive a moderate heart attack will return to the exact same behavior that led to their heart attack within one year because this fear of death doesn't change behavior. Isn't that interesting? That we go, it ain't going to happen to me. But if it does, I believe I'm strong enough to overcome it. And I'm like, why Survived are you waiting? Once. Why are you waiting for it to fall apart? Mm -hmm. And so we, we raise our children we say we're going to be there for them. Well, we are if they're bad. We're not there, at least by research accounts, or what it's telling us that we're there for the good. But we're really quick to complain when our kid's full of potholes and go, what's your problem? Really? When did you teach me to take care of a bridge? Yeah. Well, I raised you. Cool. So you, I got in trouble a lot, but that didn't really right. teach me anything. Well, you teach them when they're two and three and four, but then life changes when you're, even when you're five and six and seven and then eight and nine and 10 and, and you have different, just like, you know, we're building another expressway in the West side now because this I-15, which was sufficient back in the sixties when it was built is insufficient now. And there's no more room. Yeah. Got legacy highway that's filled up now. So you need to continue to, you know, to use that analogy to, to make, you need to maintain the infrastructure that you have built, but you also need to build more 
because as you grow, there are other needs and other under, you know, there are other needs and, and just you're encountering different things and you need to have different life skills. And so you need to, to maintain that. So we'll think about, for example, work. Yep. Right. So we talk our kids and definitely kids are a great microcosm of chaos. <laughs> right. But how many of us say anything about work or care about work until we don't like what's happening at work? As long as my check clears, I don't care mm-hmm. until I don't like it anymore. And it's like, well, how did it get here? Well, how long have you been here? 20 years. Oh, why didn't you bring it up 20 years ago? Right. You have people say, I've heard people say, oh, the hardest time of marriage is the first five years. Well, I've been married over 26. Guess what? 26 is just as hard as five, <laughs> right? Different. I'd like to think some more maturity. Um, definitely a lot of patience on my wife's behalf, right? But I'm not going to ever per- assume or even say that because I've been married 26 years, I got it figured out. No, I survived the first 26 years. I hope I've learned a lot and I've matured. That really speaks no volumes to tomorrow. That goes back to that equation, right? Of that mm-hmm. constantly needing to evaluate it. Because I'm like, just because I made it to 26 doesn't mean I'm making it to 30. I still got to sit back and go, so if part of my equation is relationships and part of that sub-equation is my relationship with my wife, I actually do have to stop and go, hmm, how am I actually doing in that? How would my, and that's a hard one because not only do I have to look at myself, I have to open myself up and say, hey, babe. How do you think we're doing? Well, I think we do better. What? You're not grateful, right? And and that's our natural inclination. And I think that's what keeps us from wanting to self-evaluate because it does take a lot, a long time and a constant effort, but it takes a lot of humility also because you got to be prepared to hear. Like none of us want to ask our boss, what could I do better? Because we're afraid our boss is going to give us a whole list of stuff. But we all say, I want to be the best employee ever. I just don't want to ask the hard stuff. Yeah, that doesn't fit into the equation. It doesn't. Yeah. Um, and that, that to me is the hardest thing is like, I like what you're saying about the equation. I like what you're saying about all of this in theory, but in practice, it's hard because it's going, I mean, change is always hard. And if you've got something that seems to be well enough, maybe it's not your best life, but you're just getting by. Sometimes, well, it's, it, it, sometimes it's hard to, just like the guy who has a minor heart attack. It's hard to live by a, the diet because your body's going to crave other foods and, and you're not going to want to exercise and so forth. And so the fear of death is not enough to maintain that lifestyle change. Um, what are some ways do you think, like if somebody wants to, you know, sit down and, and, and get this equation, you know, get, figure out their equations in their life, what is something that he or she could do? Because that's a big obstacle is I don't want to face the hard things. I don't want to, I don't want to actually be more specific. I don't want to look inward. I don't want to reflect on what I need to do better. That's a scary thing to do. That's a hard thing to do. I know there are a lot of times when I just think, ah, I'm just going to go to bed. I don't want to write my, you know, like, I don't want to write my journal tonight specifically. Cause I, you know, a, a journal is a way to kind of reflect. Mm-hmm. It's like, I don't want to reflect on all the crap that happened today. I'm just going to go to bed. 
Or know. just write it. Today sucked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or just you know. So do you have some suggestions for for things that people could could do that that may help them get over that big huge obstacle of not wanting to look inward? Yeah. So I think the first one that I'd maybe suggest if we can go back to something you said, please. Okay. So you said. I really like the thinking about the equation and all of that. And then you followed it up with a word before you talked about how hard it was. What word did you use? Boy, my memory. Like you said, my you memory used the is word good. But. but. Oh, okay. with one T. Right. So w- why? Why did I go back there? Because I think the very first goal is we have to actually pay attention to ourselves. It's that mindfulness of not just for anxiety, but in every aspect. I like what you're saying about this. And it's hard. When I say, but I go, I can justify why, even if I agree with that, I can't do that because I've already established that it's hard. Whereas if I go, I like all this and it's hard. Yes, it is. It's not undoable though. You can achieve it. It's hard. There's no question. It takes a lot of soul searching. There's no question. It may require a lot of changes in one's lifestyle. And it's doable. It's just not fun. It's like if I, if your daughter turned to you and said, dad, I love you, but (laughs) do you believe anything she just said to you? Or you're like, you just buttered me up. You're about to tell me something I don't like. You've given me the excuse to get out of what's about to happen. Mm -hmm. You can't get mad at me, dad, because I told you I loved you first. So are you suggesting just switching the, I mean, are you suggesting, a, a, you know, use and instead of button situations? Like I that? think Is words, that... I think words have meaning. Mm-hmm. I mean, just like your poetry, right? right? I use specific words for specific reasons. This reminds me, there's some looking at my bookcase right now. See if I can see the book. Um, I haven't put them in alphabetical order yet, so I don't know. Uh, I don't see it, but it's the book, the boy, the mole, the fox and the horse. Yes. Um, that book has become a, I'm still looking. That book has become very meaningful to me and it is much more profound than I ever thought it was when I first opened it up and read it. But in there talking about the fox um, I believe it was the boy who says, the fox doesn't say much, does he? And the horse responds, no, I think. But then he responds, and we're glad that he's with us. Instead of no, but we're glad that he's with us. Because when I hear that, the use of the word and, like when he says, if you were to say, no, but we're glad with he, that he's with us, it almost says that his not saying much is a negative thing. No, he doesn't talk. You're right. But we're still glad that he's with us. When you say and instead, it's like, no, he doesn't. And we're glad that he's with us. That no, doesn't change his it value. No, it's, he doesn't talk. That's okay. We're just glad he's with us. So th- that's interesting. Um, yeah, w- words have meaning and... I like that. I mean, that's a very simple first step is and. So in addition to, you know, maybe looking at things as an and rather than a but, 
what other thoughts do you have on things that people can do to to get over that obstacle of the difficulty of change? And so obviously words have meaning. I think the second one, and this is probably, I think the hardest one Mm -hmm. is you have to look at your environment, right? Are you open for the honest feedback of those you call your friends or your significant others or whatever they may be? If you go to your child, how am I doing as a parent? Are you prepared for what your child's about to tell you? Because if not, don't waste the time. It's like I, I, I laugh. I remember as a young therapist, I'd have these patients come in. We'd spend all this time talking about how to treat their depression or their anxiety. And then they'd come back the next week. I'm like, so did you do anything we talked about? No. Okay. So, and so we talk about it again, send them on their way. They'd come back. Did you do it? No. I don't want to do that. Give me something different. I'm like, oh, well, here, let me grab my box of the special things for people who don't want to do the normal <laughs> things, right? And I think that's hard because if I can't ask my wife and be prepared for what my wife is going to tell me, I need to maybe question, am I actually in a good situation, either personally or in that relationship, that it's actually meaningful for me to that equation, I want my wife. I just can't talk to her about anything. So is your equation to just be conjoined with somebody but not have a relationship? Mm -hmm. Oh, no. I want to have a great relationship. You literally just said you don't want to talk to them ever. That doesn't – what's your definition of relationship then, right? And so I think you have to do an assessment of what you have around you, who you have around you, and where you actually hold them in your hierarchy or inner circle of – can I take critical directions from them? Things that maybe be are hard to hear. Do you think, do you see a lot of, you know, in your practice, have you seen a lot of uh, people just, you know, it is what it is. I mean, I'm just going to get by with where I'm at. I mean, I'm leave well enough alone type situation when, when, you know, you can see that they could have a much better, situation, but they're just like, ah, it's working for me. Just going to leave well enough alone. Oh yeah. I, I have people do that all the time. And what's interesting is they say, I'll leave well enough alone. And then when it doesn't work, they come back very angry at you, at me. <laughs> they'll come back and they'll be like, you didn't fix this. Well, you don't have ADHD. Well, you don't care about my situation. Well, yeah, I do. I offered you other advice. I don't want that. Okay. So you were content where you were, but now you're not. And now you're back mad at me. Because you assumed that I held something from you because you weren't ready for whatever was about to come. We all want, when we go to our doctor and we're worried something bad is going to happen, what do you want your doctor to tell you? That there's no problem. That there's no problem. What if he tells you that there is something wrong? The stages of grief are, you get pissed first. You're Mm -hmm. like, what? Screw you. I hate you. Like people doctor shop all the time. I want this. So people come to me. I want to be happy. You need to exercise. I want drugs. Well, A, I don't prescribe drugs, but even if I did, that's not the answer for your situation. So you don't care. So you just paid me a lot of money (laughs) to tell you what you needed to do, and you're mad because you don't want it. Think about relationships. I ask my kid, hey, how am I as a dad? You suck. I ain't talking to you anymore. Why won't my kid talk to me? Well, because you know, everything they're going to share, you don't want to hear, and you just get it's not mad safe if they to share, share anymore. Yeah. That's interesting because 
Well, did you watch Simpsons? Yes. Did you see that episode when Homer, um, to get, I think, uh, he wanted to work at home, and so he gained a lot of weight, dressed in a muumuu. I can't remember uh, that one. He, so... <laughs> Yeah, it's the one where he tried to dial 911 because the nuclear plant was going to explode. And the uh, phone operator, you know, the pre-recorded operator says, I'm sorry, the fingers you use to dial with are too fat. To order a dialing wand, mash the keypad with the palm of your hand. But anyway, at the end of the episode, um, he wants to lose the weight. So Mr. Burns is like having him do sit-ups. And Homer's like, Ugh, it was just too hard for Homer. He couldn't do the sit-ups. And Mr. Burns says, fine, I'll pay for liposuction. And Homer goes, woohoo. You know, yeah. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. You, know, you want to just bypass, bypass what needs to be done, not really fix it, but just like I, I remember growing up when I would um, – you know, my whenever something would go bad for me, my goal was never to necessarily fix it. My goal was to get rid of the yucky feelings that I had that it caused. And so I would do whatever I could rather than what I needed to do to actually prevent this from happening in the future. You know, what's the, you know, why is this I'm not asking why is this happening? Like this happened. I don't want this to happen anymore. So I never went to the root of the problem. Um, I rather, you know, like. In the first episode of this podcast, I talked about this Thoreau quote where he said, um, to paraphrase, for every one person striking at the root of evil, there's a thousand hacking at the branches. And I tweaked it a little bit and in that, you know, rather than my striking at the root of my problem, I've been hacking at the thousands of branches, the symptoms and, and these other things that that does nothing to prevent you know, this problem from continuing to grow. But it makes it uglier. It does make it, ultimately, yeah, it does make it uglier. I mean, so that was my goal was not to fix the problem. Well, I didn't, you know, you know, to my, you may have thought you were fixing yeah, the problem. Yeah, I, I was a kid, you know, well, even an adult. I, I had no idea what I was doing. I just thought, well, it is fixing the problem. But I look back now, like, no, you, that was not fixing the problem. I just wanted to get out of that discomfort, you know, and, you know, I see now that that's not how it works. It's not how it works. Um, uh, Joe Rogan had uh, Jordan Peterson on his podcast once, and this a clip of this like kind of saved me last year, where he just he talked about I think it's his fourth rule and is one of his twelve rules, and he talked about you know how life is tragic for everybody, you know, and and we need something to set against that tragedy. And, and life is tragic to start out with, and then we or somebody else will do something that will make it even worse, you know, betrayal or whatever, make it even worse. And we need something to set against that. And his, his point was, it's like we talked about earlier, it's not necessarily like trying to be happy, but he says you need to find meaning in your life. What is meaningful, some meaning that you define for you. And his, his suggestion is what he called it a continual self-transcendence, you know, Yesterday, like, I guess this really goes back to your equation. What is your equation? I want to be, I want to be a good dad. So my equation is I need to listen to my children. I need to be clear about my expectations. I need to spend time with them. I need to them. spend time with them. And, you know, those are three parts of the equation. 
so that's what I want to work on. And so today I think, okay, yesterday, those three points in that equation, how did I do on each of those? Is there something that I could have done better? You know what? I had time to spend with them, but instead I went upstairs and I, um, you know, I, I did something for that, me, for me, which is not bad, but maybe I did something for me all night long when I could have spent 15, 20 minutes with them. Okay. Today, I'm not going to do that today. It's a little step, you know, and that was his point. And, um, and one thing he said that I, I, I've really appreciated was he said, you have to have the humility to set the bar low enough because for my point, I mean, I, I used to like have, you know, I, I struggle with something and then I think, okay, never again. And I would create this really intricate schedule and plan to never have that thing happen again. And I was just setting myself up to fail, you know, but his point was you have to have the humility to set the bar low enough, not I mean, you need to be aiming up, but not necessarily, uh, you know, 90 degrees. Or it can't be an all or nothing. No, or but it's that's going to be a nothing. Right. But that's what I was doing. Yeah. And so I love that reminder. You know, we need to do a sincere evaluation and then, okay. His point was, you know, if you're out of shape, you can't set a goal to run a marathon tomorrow, you know, set a goal to go walk a mile tomorrow and then start from there. Um, and give yourself permission that if it's only half a mile, you still have a goal to get to the mile. Yeah. Uh, that's that's a huge thing for me is learning to be patient with myself and kind to myself. You know, I, I think I shared with you that, that uh, write-up I put at the start of the day. You know, it's the start of the day. Um, and, you know, some negative, I'm just paraphrasing here, um, some negative things or pain, loss, fear, is going to happen. It's going to come from inside or outside of you. When that happens, you know, stop and pause. Remember, be patient with yourself. Remember people there to help you. Remember to reach out to those people. Um, remember uh, that you can't control everything, but you can control some things. Remember that you need to work on the things that you can control um, and that you're able. Remember that you're going to be okay and that these things, including the fear, are going to pass. And that is helped me to be kind to myself and patient and gentle with myself because I used to be very critical and that was never, never helpful to me. I, I find that the patient and loving approach to myself, not only, you know, as I've done that, I found it easier than to use that approach with my children, for instance, and other people, you know, that's been good for me. I agree. Good. If you did agree, then... Then you kick me off. <laughs> yeah, then you're done. We are going to end this now. Um, I was going to say, to, to your point, so we were, we were talking about things that we can do maybe to, you know, to figure out this equation and to be, to get ourselves to do these things. And I, I think that that big part is just not all or nothing. Like, so you make your equation, so you fail today. It's okay, you know, just so tomorrow, get up and try it again. But the key for me is to to be willing to maintain that self-awareness and that willingness to look inward. And that to me is, is has been the biggest part is just to acknowledge to myself that, listen, you, 
this is a big task that you've undertaken, you know, to, to try to become my, I call it my higher self. You know, I, I mean, maybe I'll never be there, but that's my goal. That's what I'm shooting for. And so, you know, what equations do I need to put into my life to achieve that? You know, um, and so we were talking about some things that we can do to make that a little bit easier to get over that obstacle of, and one thing that we talked about earlier, I don't know if we talked about it yet here on the actual podcast, but you know, that, that quote by Nietzsche, you know, um, paraphrase it again, a man who, um, understands a why can endure any how. So if we know why we're doing that, you know, if we understand like a big thing for me, like as being a father is I think about my children. I think, why do I want to be a good dad? And why? And why do I want to be a good dad? I mean, I see a lot of kids, me included, my siblings who, you know, we, my dad was not particularly involved in my life. I, I mean, he was there, but I never felt like there was much concern about my authentic self. And so I just killed that off so that I could, you know, do things that I thought he wanted me to do. And I look at my life and I'm like, well, I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay. And I see a lot of that around. And so I think, well, so then why do I want to, what, what, why do I want to be a better? Why dad? do you want more? Why do I want more? And I know why I want more because I look at, I mean, I, I look at myself. I look at when I was a kid, I never felt like I had anybody who I could go talk to. I, I internally dealt with all my fears, which resulted in me just kind of withdrawing and not, and not risking things, not going out there, just staying as small as possible. Yeah. And I don't want that for my kids. I want them to feel safe. I want one big thing is the thought of them struggling with a fear or something by themselves alone. That breaks my heart. And so for me, one of my whys is because I don't want my kids to ever be scared and feel like they have to sit in that fear by themselves. You know, I tell them, I may not be able to fix it for you, but I can sit in it with you. And so for me, that's a huge motivator for me. See, so you've already started the steps of, of building the equation, right? Right. So if you look at it, you go, so being a good dad or, or, or you know, being a present dad, how, wh whatever right. you want to use to define that, we go, that dadhood is what the end of the equation wants to be for me. Mm -hmm. So Nietzsche comes in and goes, so do you understand the why? And I think you can't really build your equation until you understand your why. For me, this concept of dad is really, really important. It's not really against if my dad was good or bad or anything. It's for me. Because right. I, to have a child to prove your dad wrong, not a good reason to mm -hmm. have a child, right? So I walk in and I go, I want to be a dad. I want to be a good dad. Okay, why? That's that authenticity. Why do you want to be a good dad. Also, everyone knows that I'm a good dad. Wrong reason. That's not, that's not meaningful. That's fame. Mm -hmm. You're not going to be happy at the end. Why do you want to do it? Awesome. Now you can go in and you can define your variables. So what does that mean? The time I spend with them, the quality, do I listen to them? Do I accept them for them? Those are the pieces that add up to dadhood for me. Awesome. 
Now you know how to measure that. So that's helpful. So we can look in our lives, like what do I, who do I want to be? That's that's the uh, what do they call the the solution? Was the solution of the problem? Mm -hmm. It's like solution focused. Yeah. So I want to be a good dad, and then you, what does a good dad mean to me? And then you. So these are the things I want to do. And then you can actually, I would think, even take those. Okay, so I want to listen better. Okay, that's another equation, listening. How do we become a good listener? What adds up to a good listener? And so you can take that and, I mean, I guess you can get. Well, you build your equation off of it because then I get to turn and go, okay, so I say spending time with my kids is an important piece of dad dadhood for mm-hmm. me. Listening to them. Awesome. So I walk in, I go, kids, do I spend time with you? No. <laughs> okay, um, so now I have to sit back and I have to look at it and go, either I'm wrong in my definition of dadhood or I have some authenticity self-check I need to do on that equa- on that piece of the equation. So, for example, if you like pizza but you don't like anchovies, then don't freaking put anchovies on your pizza. That doesn't mean you can't have pizza. You're just not going to eat the anchovy. So I go in and say, do I still believe in dadhood? Yeah. Okay, but that one, let's just be authentic and honest. (laughs) That one I'm not going to do. Good. At least be honest about it. So how are you going to make up the difference then? Mm. And I think that's, it's like, for example, I was once in this think tank and we were talking about the, um, right now, corporate America spends about $28 billion a year in self-help. Wow. Right? Think about that. That's like massive amounts of money. And they'll go and they'll go to – we'll just choose one. Not that this isn't the exact example, but it's one that's on top of my head. Seven habits of highly effective people. So I go and I learn and I go home and I do those seven steps and I'm supposed to be the most effective human being in the world, right? Because I did those seven. But it never seems to work like that. Either it doesn't fit me, that one I can't do, or there's more than seven things needed for my effectiveness. And and, and I think that, so if you go to like uh, Frankel's work, Man's Meaning, right? Mm-hmm. This whole concept. So do we all need to be in a concentration camp to get a concept of our meaning? Or is it a, it's more about the principle behind it? Are you... I want to say low enough in your, but are maybe are you humble enough that you can actually with authenticity sit back and go, if I looked at myself at the things that mattered most, at the things that I profess that, like we said earlier when we were talking about an epitaph, mm-hmm. if I really was going to have it put on my epitaph, great dad, really? So being a dad was important to you. Yep. So tell me about your equation. My kids never got in trouble. So you had great kids, but that didn't mean you're a great dad, mm-hmm. right? So what do you want the that meaning to be? What is your meaning? Um, I remember I heard like it was a college graduation talk. I think it was like Matthew McConaughey. Mm-hmm. And he was talking to him and says, you need to decide what is most important to you. If it's money, great. I'm not judging you for, for money, but what are you going to do with it? Yeah, like it goes back to what we were talking about earlier. You know, a meaningful life. I mean, if we are determining our meaning by these external stimuli, and sometimes maybe those will hit with us, but not always. Um, 
and I like that though, because maybe some people it is money. Who are we to tell somebody else that shouldn't be meaningful? Who are we? I mean, we, it's just individual personal thing. We all need to look inside what is meaningful to me. Maybe people don't want to be a parent. That's okay. They don't want to be a a father or mother. That's okay. That's not meaningful to them. I'm not going to tell them that, no, that should be meaningful to you. Therefore go out and have children. You're going to be so unhappy at the end of life. Yeah, exactly. You're all, you, you, uh, it's just going to be miserable for you. There's a lot of, I mean, one thing I've been learning too is listen to my gut, you know, instead of listening. I, I, I've spent, I know so much time in the echo chamber in my head and I'm starting now to listen to my gut. Like, what is my gut telling me? Something will feel off, but then I'll justify it in my head anyway, you know, and like, oh, it's, but it's got to be okay. But my gut says, uh, uh-uh, uh, you better get out of here now. But I uh, know because this is a good thing. And so it's really an individual analysis. Everybody should just because something works for somebody doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else. And I think when that happens, when we find ourselves measuring ourselves based off of the outside force or what other people are doing, that's where I think all the chaos starts occurring, right? So if for you being a dad is the most important thing of all the meaning of your life, Dude, run with it. Enjoy mm-hmm. it. That doesn't make you good. That doesn't make you bad. That makes you you. There's only one of you. You can't be like everyone else. Like, you know, I'd listen to people say, well, you know, if so-and-so had done this, if so-and-so had done that, they'd be this or that. And I always smile. And I always tell people, I'm pretty sure at the end of this life, whatever's ahead of us, Mother Teresa's further along in the <laughs> line. But she wasn't married. She didn't have children. She wasn't rich. She didn't drive a nice car. So by some societal norms, we walk around and say, oh, she didn't have a very meaningful life. Really? But also, her life is not for everybody. It isn't supposed to be. Right. I mean, because I, especially when it comes to, um, I don't know which word to use here, a, a religious life. And we, we look at Mother Teresa. That's a unique person. I couldn't do that. And I shouldn't feel bad that I couldn't do that. But I think for her, it was an authentic life. And I think that's the difference. That's what I'm saying. For her, that's who she was. It was authentic. And she thrived and it was meaningful to to her. But I shouldn't feel bad that I couldn't do that and that I would struggle and that I would not want to be there. I'll go and help every now. You know, I, I, I was served a mission in the Philippines for two years and that's about all I could take, you know? And I, so I come back here and, um, move on. There's other, there's other aspects of my life now. So I think that. That I, has to be that internal. Yes. That, that, that's that authenticity internal equation. If for you being a part of the Peace Corps is, is your definition of meaning. Cool. Own it, please. Because if you don't, then things just will not go well for you because you're not going to be invested in it. You're not, you're going to want to be getting out of it whenever you can. And there's no one size fits all for life. I think that's pretty clear. Um, and I think, and and that's why we need to find out our truth, our authenticity and what it is that, that drives us, what it is that makes us, 
um, what brings meaning. Well, you won't be happy, right? We've all met that person that you can tell is not authentic. Yeah. And not only do we not like being around them, but the truth is if we really looked at them, you, we can all tell that they're not, I mean, we talk about happiness as being this fleeting thing, but that authenticity of happiness, they're not that. It seems like they're always chasing that next thing to try to self-define. It's like, what a difficult way to live constantly chasing something that you're not. Like, I can try all day long. I'm never going to be the size of Shaquille O'Neal. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to happen. So I can fret and I can fake and I can do everything I want. And guess what? When I stand next to Shaquille O'Neal, I am not Shaquille O'Neal. And or I can be happy being me and being the best me. Yeah, and... I look at, you know, in, in, in the legal field, I mean, there's a, there's attorneys who work for these big corporate, corporate firms. They work a lot of hours. They get paid a lot of money and I would be miserable. I would be miserable. I couldn't do it. I couldn't, I don't care how much money they paid me. I could not do it. But if I thought, well, it's this prestigious, I'm going to chase after that. I would be absolutely miserable. Um, and so it's, it's that knowing who you are, what brings you joy. And, you know, when I was in the Philippines, those were some of the happiest people that I knew. Now there's a lot of poverty. And and one thing I will say is poverty is hard. I, I have not seen poverty like I saw in the Philippines. I mean, people who were digging up, there's this one family the Kayabyab family on this island called Katandawanas. Sweet, sweet family. Um, they were living on this little dry piece of land, had a little bamboo hut that was probably, I don't know, 10 by 10. And they had a little fire outside that they would cook. And it wasn't even their land. It was in the middle of a rice field. And I remember stopped by one time and they were eating what we called the... Um, Kamotin Kahoi, which is uh, kind of like a sweet potato. And they had to go out and dig it up. They, you know, and, and that was their, what they had to eat. They went and, you know, and found it and dug it up and brought it home and ate it. It's hard to pursue a meaningful life when you have that type of poverty, you know. So there is a level of finance, financial, um, security that I think we need to be able to then go pursue a meaningful life because up until that point, it's just perhaps survival, perhaps, but I will say this about them. And then I want to get to your perhaps. Cause I want to hear what you have to say, but my, the reason I brought them up as an example is I remember, um, the dad, he was older and he was at work. He had a stroke, so he couldn't really work that, that much. And so the mom, his wife, who was younger, substantially younger than him, she had gone to Manila to find work and, um, she was going to send money back. And I remember one day we went, stopped by their place and he was leaning up against a tree or something. And he looked at me and he just said, Awa nung jos, which means mercy of God. Awa nung jos. And I thought, what's going on? And 
his wife was coming home. And I don't know what they were going to do about money, but I just remember thinking how, how, now that stuck, that struck me because he wanted her there with the kids and he recognized, you know, the kids needed her and they were going to make ends meet how, I don't remember exactly what they did, but, um, it was just to your, so your point, perhaps they were happy. They were happy and they tried to see the, the joys in life. Um, little kids, little boy named Glenn, cute little kid. He'd always see us like a, a mile down the road. Elders, elders, <laughs> just cute little kid, but they had nothing. But I think it's hard. It's hard generally to seek meaning when you have no financial security, when you don't know when your food's going to come or your meal is going to come. But so talk to me about your well, perhaps. I, I just, I guess find it interesting because, so I served an LDS mission in Argentina, mm-hmm. in Northern Argentina. So right next up to Chile and Bolivia. So same type of poverty type of stuff. Right. Um, and what was interesting is I remember talking to someone once he said, you don't know the value you have until you have nothing else to rely on. Right. And I said, and I was like, well, what do you mean by that? He's like, and he was very, 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 he's in a very good position politically until he joined the LDS church. Mm-hmm. And then he was immediately fired. And so him and his oldest son were picking lemons professionally. That's what they did. And they had nothing. And he's like, it wasn't until he had nothing that he actually realized what actually mattered the most to him. I can see that. Right. And so I agree with you. There is an advantage to sometimes having that financial means to find a meaning. But sometimes I think we can get distracted in going that financial means yeah. is our meaning. It's like, no, that, that does provide opportunity. However, what would you do if you didn't have that? Cause there's, cause the vast majority of the world does not make what the United States makes. So are we suggesting that there's no meaning to their purpose, that there's no, maybe, maybe the word is instead of the happiness we perceive, the true happiness of having a meaning. My wife being home with my kids, being home with me, even if we have to eat sweet potatoes we dug up ourselves, all that matters to me, my meaning is my relationship with my wife and my kids and our family. Everything else to heck with it. It will suck. We won't like it. And we're still going to be happy because we're together because we sent her to Manila. She made money. That that didn't make anything better for us. Yeah. I I think too, though, this is a thing that we need to also, I mean, that may, like another family in that situation, it may not have worked. Yeah. You know? I think each one, that's why it's unique. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, you know, to my point earlier, we need to understand that about ourselves and be patient with ourselves that we don't have to um, do things like everybody else. We don't have to be satisfied with what other people are satisfied with. Um, we need to know who we are and what is meaningful to us and then pursue that. But I, I, I do think your point is very um, important. Uh, you know, you're this, this lemon picker friend of yours. Um, yeah. I think that sometimes wealth and position can skew what we think is meaningful in our life. And and then when it's all taken away, if we are 
willing to evaluate ourselves and be self-aware, then we can see the, the true value. But I think there's also the risk of being angry and bitter and, and, and then just losing everything. Um, but to me, that just sounds kind of ideal. Picking lemons in Northern Argentina just seems so peaceful. It can be. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever lived in a third world country. I don't know if you well, like the, the medical aspect. No, no. I mean, don't get injured. <laughs> right. There's definitely benefits. And, and, and I think that that's unique to all of us and we're allowed to have that and that's okay. Um, I think part of it going back is that authenticity of our meaning of our equation, if you would, but also being okay with the authenticity of our own personal emotions. I, I always tell parents, your child's allowed to feel what they want. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they get to do what they do. If you make me mad, I'm allowed to be mad. I'm not bad for feeling mad. What I do with that definitely comes with consequences. I'll share with people quite often. Um, it's interesting because when we were talking about instead of the word but using the word and, for me it's a using the right word. I don't care if it's and or whatever because I'll use and sometimes to challenge patients where they'll walk in and they're like, I'm really mad at my mom for doing this, this, and this. And I'll look at them and go, okay, and? Oh, well, you, you don't understand. I said, no, I understand. I understand the concept of being upset. I mean, I think I'm a very smart individual. We've all been mad at people before. And? Well, what do you mean? He says, do you want her to cut her arm off? Is that what you're asking for? Well, no. So cut a pound off of flesh somewhere else? Because... If you're doing it out of ire, out of penance, out of she owes me something, you're never going to be satiated. Mm-hmm. So why don't you admit the emotion? Why don't you admit the authenticity? Why don't you define if that fits into your equation? And how about you move on in life? Just be you. Be happy. It's like if you don't like how your family is, great. But standing on the edge of the corner screaming about how much you don't like your family isn't going to change anything except make you miserable. I was um, driving an I-15 a month or so ago, southbound, and there was – the lane that I was in was going like 60 miles an hour, speed limit 70, and I was really frustrated. And uh, the cars couldn't break onto either side of the lane. It seems like we were in a construction zone or something, so it was even more sketchy. And I was just – it's really frustrating. And I could see this big 18 wheeler that was causing the slowdown up ahead. And I started to get so irritated, like, Oh God, just, I, I wanted him to appreciate his destroying everyone. else. Yeah. I just, I just, <laughs> and I thought, but, and then I just had this understanding. I just thought, wait a second, as things are now, like, like taking into account the situation now, what is the safest thing for everybody right now. And I realized the safest thing for everybody right now is for him to stay in this lane. If he switches lanes, it's going to cause a problem because I don't know that it'll get over. And the only way to really fix this would be to rewind time and have him stay in that slow lane. And I thought, well, that's not possible. And so kind of to your point, I, I, as I was thinking about that, I just thought, my being upset at him right now, I do feel that, but my being upset at him right now does not change the outcome at all. And so the safest thing is for him just to stay where he is. And at the end of the day, going 60 and a 70 is not 
I mean, maybe I'll be a few minutes late to the place I'm going. And as I kind of walk through that process, you know, as I process the situation, you know, my anxiety decreased and I was able to calm down and I just thought, all right, just, I'm just going to go 60 miles an hour until this truck gets over. And think of what that could have done future wise in that equation, right? So I want to be a good dad. I've been stuck behind the stupid car or, you know, truck that's going too slow. So now I'm just irritated. So now I'm showing up to get my kids and I'm five minutes late, but now I'm irritated. Mm-hmm. It's not even my kids that are the cause. Right. But now I'm so irritated that then my kid says something in the car that irritates me. And so I rip into my kid and I go, hold on. That wasn't what I wanted. That isn't what I planned for. So me being mad at some dude that couldn't control the situation necessarily, I allowed it to impact me that it impacted everything else. So how did it really work out in the long run better for me? It doesn't mean I'm wrong. I'm allowed to be mad that he's slow. I can wish he was in a different lane. There's nothing wrong with that. And what do you want to do about that? And what are you going to do about it? I like that. And what are you going to do about that? So whatever problems you got, okay. And, I mean, the reality is this is what you're dealing with. Mm -hmm. And what are you going to do about it? And really, and that comes back, you know, that... uh, you know, there are things that I can control and things that I can't control. And if it's if it's something that I can't control, learning to be able to just to let that go, that is life changing to, to learn that. But I the opposite, the things that you have to control, I've learned that I have to work on those things. If I don't work on those things, then if I think, oh, I can't control that, so I'm gonna let it go. Here's some things I can control that will make my situation better, but I don't want to do them. That's not the solution. Yeah. You know, you can't be willing to let these things go, but then not work on the stuff and then get angry because things aren't working out. I have to work on things that I have control over, like taxes are coming up. I have to, <laughs> you know, I, I, I have to get those done. And if I don't, then when I wake up in the morning and I'm anxious and yeah, you're anxious because you're not doing the things that you can control. But I find that when I've done the, when I have worked on the things that I have control over, I don't have that anxiety. I don't have it. And things that I can't control, even if, even if it's a freight train coming at me, well, I can't do anything about it. You know, I'm so it's just going to come. So, but yeah, doing the things I need to do. And that's part of probably every equation. That's like a constant. That's the, uh, Speed of light. Exactly. In your equations. Yes. Excellent. Um, well, it's been great. I appreciate it. It's been coming. an honor. Thanks. Yeah. No, I'm honored. Um, any words of wisdom as we wrap up here? I think the biggest one I'd maybe share is once. I, I think the reason I like the concept of equation is once you've established an equation and you're authentic to yourself, you by default give yourself permission to be human right? I don't have to do it perfect. That's not what this is Mm -hmm. about. It's about me knowing the direction I'm headed. It's like I had shared with you in a different conversation. John Lennon, life is what happens while you're busy making other decisions. You're not going to be able to grow to achieve anything without movement, Mm -hmm. but you've got to give yourself permission for life to occur throughout it. But if I have an authenticity about me, if I have an equation about me, if I'm constantly checking myself I'm okay with scratching my knee once in a while. 
I get to still be human because I know the direction I'm headed. And just heading in a direction. Yeah. And make course adjustments as you go. Just start. Everything's a course adjustment. If you fly in a plane, you don't even realize it, but they're making course adjustments the entire time. You just don't get on a plane and go a straight line because wind blows your plane. So they're con you just don't feel it, but they're con boats do the same thing. We do it driving and a little bit of turn here or there keeps me in my lane, but it's ironic how we're okay with that. But we're so self-judgmental if we allow ourselves a moment of adjustment. I thought that this was the best way to be a dad. I realized that's not really what works for me or my family. So we're going to do it this way. Cool. Awesome. Are you still being authentic to who you are? Yes. Are you still achieving your equation? Yes. Cool. Well, and, and I think the problem there comes when we, again, take our cues for externally. Mm -hmm. When we look at other people, well, they're not doing it this way. But they didn't do it this way. They did it this way, you know, and uh, this quote, uh, let me find it. Just a moment. I need to, I need to record the Jeopardy music. <laughs> there you and go. Play in the background. Um, I'm going to just give me one second. Or get I... a corporate account where they play some. Jazz music behind. Yeah, I just want the Jeopardy music. It makes everybody on on the edge of their seat. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Let's see here. If I can't find it, I'm going to paraphrase it. But I would rather read it because it's... Oh, I'm not going to find it. But basically, it was... Uh, you know... Basically, you, you do a more of a service to your – well, you do more of a service – you do more of a service to your children to teach them to value um, – oh, to think to, – to, to teach them to value thinking on their own rather than just doing what other people say. That's a horrible paraphrase. I'm going to find it. I'm going to post it here so people can read it. But to be able to have the courage to do, to, to be you in spite of what other people say or what um, the trends are, because that's, yeah, that's when you, you, you get wide of the mark. So, yeah. All right. One more. Give me one more thing of wisdom. Wow. One more thing of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, what do you want on your, what, what epitaph do you want on your gravestone? Let's say that. Well, I always said my power word was fearless. I'm hoping at some point that there's some aspect of a humbleness within that fear, fearlessness. That's what, at least for me personally, I'm currently working on, right? I've never been fearless but back to that conversation with that CEO, it's now that more humility of how am I handling that fearlessness? I'm allowed to be me. I'm allowed to roar. But can I do it in a way where it doesn't have to leave body spread across the battlefront? I like that. Um, I mean, our being authentic requires fearlessness always because the world 
doesn't take kindly necessarily to authentic people. And so it takes fearlessness. And maybe the humility part of the fearlessness is back to that internal meaning, right? The, I can be fearless. I can stand for my equation, what I know to be true. I don't have to be up front in front of everyone's face to do it. I can be okay with me and knowing what I'm doing is right for me, regardless of what other people think. Why wouldn't do it that way? Okay, that's fine. You don't have to. I'm doing it because it's right for me. Yeah. It's authentic to me. It's my equation for me. And I'm fearless for what I know. I just don't have to. I think that maybe that's what I could take along away from even this discussion into what that CEO shared. It's not the aggressiveness that was the issue. It's how I was going about doing it. Mm-hmm. That that instead of being worried about that fame and and all of and that wealth and everything on the external, it's okay to have that meaningness within myself that I can humbly just know who I am and what I need and what I want to do and my authenticity. And it's okay if nobody else is all right with that. As long as I'm a good person in society, the rest of me gets to be me. If we could all get to that point, that would be wonderful. But I also believe firmly that we don't necessarily have to get there for it to be beneficial. I think the process and the effort as that we put in to getting there, even if we never do, that makes a big difference. I think the process is the big one. Yeah. That's the fun part. The fun and not fun part. Yes, it is. Well, thanks, Ben. I appreciate it. All right. All right.